0: Do you enjoy your catchy graphic or some well-presented visual content that people can add into their social media? And you think to yourself, how have you done that? It looks amazing. I must admit, it's more about the writing and broadcasting than the artwork for me. That's not really my polished area. But I realised that it could be with a bit of help from Canva for Teams. With which you... Or you and your team can collaborate and design quite quickly and easily sleek-looking content from your own standout social media posts right through to documents and business presentations that will get you that deal. Since I've had a mess about with it, I've found templates galore for my Instagram posts and stories, thumbnails for YouTube, landscapes for my Facebook posts. The list goes on. Plus, with features such as Magic Eraser, any of those finer details you want to change. Then you can do easy as, and you can be creating your own of these in no time at all, having fun whilst you do. Because most people like their social media appreciated and liked, or else why bother? With Canva and its many branches, you've got Canva docs and Canva whiteboards, which will give you and your team the space to brainstorm for the best results you can, Canva presentations, which will make yours sleek and up to that next level and canva print so all these inspirations you've turned into designs can be brought to life on anything from mugs to posters and all printed planet friendly you'll enjoy messing about for hours on canva having fun with the many premium fonts graphics and free library of videos and photos at your disposal it's loaded with the templates and tools to support your creative process each step of the way and to make your creations ones to remember Design and collaborate with Canva for Teams. Right now, you can get a free 45 day extended trial when you go to canvame TCE. That's C A N V A. dot M E/slash TCE for a free 45 day extended trial. Canva.me/slash TCE. Hello all and the warmest of welcomes in these warmest of times to the true crime enthusiast podcast the regular dose from my north wales spare room of those tales of true crime that you won't find commonly on other shows some you may never have come across others you may think he's got to have made that up for sure but which are all true and which i've scoured the uk and ireland to bring to you doing so is myself paul the creator host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title my beloved toothless rat bag, Pixie, the true crime enthusiast, Cat, is here as always. And we're completed by yourselves. The reason why I do what I do, the wonderful enthusiasts. It is as fabulous as always having you joining me in the mog, which I thank you so kindly for doing so. And I do hope that as you have, then it's for an episode that finds you and yours all good, all safe, and all well. So I'm back then now after Patreon week. Catching up with shout outs here, with them going out this time around to DC Bo Duff, Liam Needham, Jordan McGregor, Tatus Ali Deb, and Claire Pearson, plus Marianne Johnson and Karen R., who have edited their pledges, and Laurie Gilmore, Tracy Campbell, Melanie Gudgel, and Bibby, who have opted to annually support the show. Thank you so much, all. It's so very kind of you to do, and it is appreciated greatly. And stuff has headed out to some of you for me to say thank you. I also hope that you all have, or are, making your way through the scores of bonus episodes that are available. Almost as many as the number of skeletons in the Schofield closet. No, I'm just joking. There can't be that many, surely. With a new one coming out each calendar month. If, like the aforementioned legends, you yourself want some extra enthusiast, or perhaps you even want some swag from the show, then it's simple to do just head over to the patreon site and look for the show there or you can use the link that's always in the episode show notes and as quick as you can be hearing extra tales such as the lost girls of liverpool the evil eyes of loxton angel from hell or the latest one that's up when terror stalked the tunnels to name just a small selection and there's a right mixed bag in there there really is some eclectic tales. This time around then, on The Enthusiast comes the episode I had planned for a few weeks ago but couldn't due to unforeseen circumstances. Blame the shit OneDrive where I work. Whenever I select Tales from the show I sometimes come across accounts of cases that I think have a fabulous fit for a show episode but there just isn't that much about them that you can find through researching to fill the length of episode that I work for. I always think if you're good enough to listen in I want to make it worth your while to give you a bit of a decent episode, decent sized one. But I don't disregard these tales. They then sit in a folder until the time comes for them to be aired, and so when I've got a few accounts that will fit nicely together into a title that the OCD alliteration loving loon in me dreams up, boom, here you are. We do cross the whole of the UK for the three accounts I've chosen for the episode, and three accounts are of truly callous, horrific and pointless crimes. The episode contains details and descriptions of crimes and events, including descriptions of a sexual nature that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing, so please use discretion whilst you're listening in all. Bearing that in mind, please join the true crime enthusiast for an episode I've entitled The Driver, The Dreamer and The Devil Worshipper. We head for our first account to the Merseyside town of Southport, one of the UK's most popular seaside resorts, home of the UK's only lawnmower museum, if you're ever stuck for a day out. It's where the Eagle Comics started, and that can claim notable people hailing from there, including chef Marcus Waring, comedians Lee Mack and Alexei Sale, and singer Mark Almond. Yeah, I won't go there with the Mark Almond rumour. Like many seaside towns, Southport has a large elderly population. Back in 2012, two of which were 78-year-old Margaret Biddulph and 88-year-old Annie Leyland. Both had long since been widowed, Annie for about six years by then, and Margaret 36. Both were grandmothers, and both were very private women who lived alone, though were described in similar glowing terms by their neighbours. Now it can't be established for definite if the two women knew each other although they only did live a quarter of a mile apart. Margaret had lived in number 15 the terraced house on Southport's Lonsdale Road since 1976 having moved there after she became widowed in 1972 and was extremely happy in the home that she kept immaculate coming from that house proud generation and indeed had only recently acquiesced to have renovations done there. Long since retired from working in the town's Prince's Foods factory, and her three children long since grown up and fled the nest, though her son Alex still lived nearby. Margaret kept herself busy tending a garden and enjoying painting and was generally very active despite a recent hip replacement operation. Her neighbour Marianne Lott recalled Margaret was a very quiet and lovely woman and was very jolly and independent. She was pushing her 80s but that didn't stop her getting taxis out and about to get groceries or to do some shopping. She didn't like to go out much but we always waved to each other when I saw her. Another neighbour, Olive Gain who would regularly catch the bus into town with Margaret said We knew her well and she always seemed to be a nice lady. She kept herself to herself but we all knew her and talked to her because she'd been here so long and was well-liked in the neighbourhood. She loved a garden and was very proud of it. We'll miss her. It's a big shock to everybody. Only a quarter of a mile away from Margaret's home at number 35 Birch Street, 88-year-old Annie Leyland also lived alone, though was somewhat frailer than Margaret. Reliant on a walking stick and a frame to get around. As a young woman, she'd enjoyed a modelling career, mainly catalogue stuff, but once appearing on the cover of Country Life magazine, and had been very active as a soprano with Southport Operatic Society until retiring some years before, and then travelling with her husband Eric until his death in 2005, aged 83. A fellow former member of the Operatic Society said, Anne was a very good looking woman when she was younger and would often turn heads. She was always made up to perfection. She was a very beautiful woman then and as a personality she was always the life and soul of the party. She just loved people and being with people. I used to go for a girl's drink with her after productions while some of the more staid people just had a coffee. Malcolm MacPhail, meanwhile who lived next door to Annie on Birch Street recalled While she was quite mentally alert for her age, she struggled to walk and needed assistance. She'd been quite ill, but it didn't stop her. A taxi pulled up every day at her home and brought her back later in the afternoon. I think she went to see friends. She had an outdoor key safe so people could get the key to enter her home. She was a very private and independent person. She kept herself to herself, but she was very pleasant and she was always nice to me. Her husband Eric died a few years ago and his son Philip lives in Eastbourne. Her other son Anthony died a while back. A friend of Annie's other next door neighbour described later how police had early on the Tuesday evening of the 21st of February 2012 been around to number 33 and after knocking upon the door asked the occupant somewhat bemusedly if she'd been burgled. To which she equally as bemused, denied that she had and confirmed to officers that she was safe. Her friend continued. She told them she hadn't and they left. It was a few hours later when the police came back and went next door. I felt a bit sorry for the police. They were only going on the information given. It is sickening. I can't believe it. She was a nice old lady. It's not something that happens around here. The big shock that this unnamed woman and Olive Gain have described refers to the events of Tuesday the 21st of February at 5.20pm when acting upon information received police officers had forced their way into a home of 36 years and had discovered Margaret's body lying in an upstairs bedroom. A post-mortem later revealed that the slight woman she was just 5 feet 4 inches tall had been strangled from behind with a telephone charging cable, the killer leaving it wrapped three times around her neck. The same information had directed officers incorrectly to number 33 Birch Street, where they were to return in the early hours of the Wednesday morning, but this time to force their way into the red brick number 35, where they made an equally tragic and disturbing discovery. Annie Leyland was found in the downstairs bedroom of her home the body on the floor with her feet in the hall and torso in the downstairs bedroom. The Zimmer frame had been knocked over in the hallway as her killer had overpowered the frail woman and knocking her to the floor had then knelt astride her and strangled her using her own dressing gown belt as she feebly attempted to fight him off. Two horrific murders within 400 metres of each other, which dreadfully occurred within the space of just over two hours. Sickening. The real stuff of nightmares, eh? On Wednesday, February 22nd, as flowers in memory of the pair were placed outside both houses, the families of both Margaret and Annie issued statements through Merseyside Police, with Annie's son Philip saying... Firstly, I'm cooperating with the police to help them carry out their duty and I would appeal to anyone with information to come forward. Secondly, I ask to be left alone to grieve quietly and to come to terms with what's happened. Alex Biddulph and Anne Pearson, meanwhile, the son and daughter of Margaret, said, We are completely numb at what has happened. What can you say, really? we're still very traumatised and really cannot take it all in. We as a family would like to thank the members of the public who have assisted the police with their inquiries. We would also urge anyone with any information that could help the police with their investigation to come forward. Chief Superintendent Nicky Holland, Merseyside Police's area commander for the Sefton area of Southport, then issued the following statement to the gathered media. Detectives from the force major incident team have launched a murder inquiry following the discovery of two bodies at two separate addresses in Southport. At this time, the causes of death have yet to be established and home office post-mortems will be carried out later. She added that officers were following a number of lines of inquiry and also confirmed that police were investigating if another burglary which took place in the home of a 76-year-old on Saturday the 18th of February in nearby James Brook Road, was related, continuing, I would like to reassure residents, particularly older residents who live in the Kew Ward area where these addresses are located, that we have increased patrols to provide reassurance and support. Officers and PCSOs were out on the ground talking to local residents and visiting older people in the area providing reassurance and support and if required, security and crime prevention advice. Now, this wasn't to be a very protracted murder inquiry really for the information that had led police to discovering Margaret's nanny had come from the killer himself as Chief Superintendent Holland had added. A 43-year-old man from Southport has been arrested on suspicion of murder and will be further interviewed in connection with the inquiry. The following morning, 43-year-old taxi driver Andrew Simon Flood of Southport's Clifton Road, who appeared in the dock shaven-headed and wearing a creased white t-shirt with a large tattoo exposed on his right forearm, broke down as he made his first court appearance Having been charged with murder the previous evening, he struggled to confirm his name, his date of birth, and his address as he burst into tears before magistrates in Bootle, then pulled out a handkerchief to wipe his eyes as he made eye contact with his equally emotional family in the public gallery, his wife Carol and her two daughters sobbing. Joanne Parsons, prosecuting, told the small court, which was packed with police and members of the press that Flood stood accused of killing Mrs Biddulph at her home in Lonsdale Road between the last sighting of her on February the 17th and February the 20th, the murder of Mrs Leyland on or around February the 20th at her home in Birch Street and the robbery of 76-year-old Maureen Suckley at her home in Janesbrook Road on Saturday February the 18th. Flood was then remanded in custody by chairperson of the magistrate's bench, Sue Keenan, and waved to his family in the public gallery as he was led to the cells. Flood had formerly been employed as a plumber until July 2009. I wouldn't trust a plumber with such a surname myself like, but there you go. But after being absent with long-term stress-related symptoms and increased alcohol consumption, In 2011, he'd found alternate employment as a driver for Southport All Whites Private Hire Taxi Firm. However, one colleague told later how Flood was prone to telling lies to his colleagues on the taxis, including that one of his children had tried to commit suicide and that his wife had left him, using these lies to cover absences that he'd taken from work due to the effects of his heavy drinking. He had also at the turn of the year taken some time off completely with a fellow driver explaining he told us he had domestic problems and that he was looking after the kids on his own but then about 10 days ago he came back and started up again. Indeed after some time off work with these personal problems Flood had gone back to taxi driving on February the 11th although his fares had drastically been reduced. Nine days later, he had committed double murder. On the 23rd of July 2012, Andrew Flood once again burst into tears as he stood in the dock of Liverpool Crown Court and admitted the murders of Anne Leyland and Margaret Biddulph the previous February, as well as the robbery of Maureen Suckley. Nicholas Johnson KC, prosecuting, told the court that Flood, who had a financially chaotic lifestyle and a serious gambling habit had strangled the two widows in southport on february the 20th my birthday that as it happens and that both women as well as mrs suckley were previous customers of flood when he drove for all white's taxis flood's dna and footmarks were found at both of the murder scenes before carrying out the murders flood had robbed maureen suckley who later picked him out of an identity parade. Mr Johnson told the court that Mrs Suckley, a retired midwife, had called for a taxi on Thursday February the 16th and it was Flood who was dispatched to collect her from a home in Janesbrook Road. Two days later, at around 2pm on the Saturday, Mrs Suckley was at home again when, through frosted glass, she saw a figure approaching her back door. Before she could close and lock the door, flood had stepped through it and asked am i in the right house he then pointed to the jewelry on her wrist and said i want them before wrenching it off and then telling her give us your money or i'm going to kill your cat he then left only after taking 540 pounds in cash from the terrified pensioner to whom he said as he was leaving i'm taking the key don't call the police Back at home, he was spotted by his wife stashing Mrs. Suckley's jewellery in a drawer, but told her he'd found it in the back of his cab, the court heard. Between 1.30pm and 2pm that following Monday, a neighbour reported seeing a man matching Flood's description entering the home of Mrs. Leyland. Mr. Johnson told the court. Mrs. Leyland had been strangled with a cord from the dressing gown she was wearing when she answered the door to Flood. Only minutes after he'd murdered Mrs Leyland, Flood was captured on CCTV at around 2.43pm at a Ladbrokes betting shop in Southport. Mr Johnson continued. He left there 19 minutes later, smiling. 25 minutes later, his taxi was captured on CCTV in Hague Street, which is a mile from Mrs Biddulph Street of Lonsdale Road. Other than that sighting at 3.27pm, we cannot say where Mr Flood was between 3.02pm and 3.55pm when he was seen re-entering Ladbrooks in Windsor Road. We know he murdered Mrs Biddulph, and 53 minutes would certainly have been long enough to have done it. When Flood's wife rang him just after he left the bookies this first time, he sounded chirpy, she later described, and indeed, a CCTV still from the betting shop showing a smiling flood was published in the media. I'll reshare the image on the show's Instagram page. Chirpy or not, the court was told that flood had indeed then headed to Lonsdale Street and had brutally murdered Mrs Biddulph before returning back to the same bookmakers less than an hour later at 3.55pm and had remained there until 4.29pm. 45 minutes later, Flood had called his wife Carol at 5.14pm, drunk, saying, I'm letting you go. You're better off without me. I'm sick of destroying you. He then told her he'd killed someone, and hung up. 23 minutes later, at 5.37pm, He drunkenly walked through the doors of Copy Lane Police Station in Bootle and had asked to speak to detectives, pushing items of jewellery he'd stolen from Mrs Leyland and Mrs Suckley towards them through a gap at the inquiry desk. He was subsequently arrested for being drunk and disorderly due to his abusive attitude towards officers, and when told that his family had been looking for him, he told an officer, I won't be seeing them for some time, I've done something silly. He then made the confession to the officer that he had killed two women, at which point he was rearrested on suspicion of murder, although he gave incorrect addresses for his victims. He was unable to be interviewed following this admission due to his intoxication, but the following morning, when he'd sobered up and after a conference with his solicitor, he now gave police the two correct addresses, resulting in the subsequent discoveries. And the reason for such horrific crimes. The court was told that the Flood family led a financially chaotic lifestyle, with Flood being chased for money by credit companies and bailiffs, which Flood's fondness for gambling probably played its part in. On February the nineteenth, Flood's landlord had even sent him a text asking for his overdue rent money. Mr. Johnson added, putting it in a nutshell. Mr. Flood and his wife owed just under £18,000. As a measure of their difficulties, in January 2012, the Floods had been pawning what were presumably their children's game consoles and video games. Yet, rather than seek help for a gambling addiction or alcohol consumption, or even applying for bankruptcy or an IVA to help he and his family out of such a financial mess, Flood had instead committed two brutal murders on the same day that had ultimately netted him only a further two hours of freedom and money for two trips to the Buckies. The very definition of senseless murder indeed. John McDermott Casey, defending Flood, described the events as an extraordinary and difficult case to explain. He said his client had amnesia about the events he'd pleaded guilty to. But expressed that Flood was remorseful, adding, "There is no simple or rational explanation for why a man of previous positive good character, a family man, has now committed these terrible crimes." But he added that depression, drinking, and desperation had all played a part. In talks with psychiatrists during his remand period, the court was told Flooded found it difficult to accept or believe. He could have done such a grievous act. Yet, he had. Sentencing Flood, the recorder of Liverpool, Judge Clement Goldstone, KC, said Flood knew where his victims lived because he'd worked for them as a private hire taxi driver and that the elderly and vulnerable women had entrusted their safety to him, telling him You targeted them because you wanted to rob them of their money and jewellery in order to feed your dependency to alcohol and your addiction to gambling which had caused you and your family to suffer financial hardship. Judge Goldstone said Flood's first victim, Maureen Suckley was allowed to live because she didn't put up a fight, adding Tragically, Mrs Leyland, despite her infirmity and great age and Mrs Biddulph paid with their lives for their brave resistance. However, given Mrs. Suckley was allowed to survive, I cannot be satisfied you planned in advance to kill those ladies. Branding the murders unspeakably wicked crimes, Flood was then sentenced to life imprisonment and told he would serve a minimum of 30 years before ever being considered for release, with Judge Goldstone adding, If I had been satisfied the killings were premeditated and planned, I would be setting a whole life term. Flood looked over at his tearful family in the public gallery as he was then taken down to the cells. He will not be considered for release until July 2042, when he will be 73 years old. Following the sentencing, Detective Chief Inspector Neil Clark of Merseyside Police who had led the investigation team that tried to make sense of Flood's murders, paid tribute to the women who had died, and also to the bravery of the pensioner who could easily have been his first victim, saying, While the sentence will not bring Mrs Leyland or Mrs Biddulph back, I hope it will bring some comfort to their families who have spent the last five months trying to deal with these tragedies. The families of Mrs Leyland and Mrs Biddulph have both suffered enormously, and I hope that with this sentencing, they can finally feel some sense of solace. We mustn't forget the bravery of Mrs. Suckley, who was also subjected to a terrifying ordeal in her own home, by Flood, that still affects her to this day. I would like to take this opportunity to thank the investigation team and the Crown Prosecution Service for their hard work in bringing Andrew Flood to justice. Annie Leyland's family are unquoted following the sentence in a flood, but Margaret's daughter Anne Pearson is. She'd been in court to witness her mother's killer sentenced and told the Liverpool Echo newspaper later on behalf of her family. Our mother was a lovely, caring person who always thought of others before herself. The tragic death has devastated us as a family, and she's greatly missed by all those who knew her. We would like to thank our family and friends for their continued support throughout this very emotional and traumatic time. Today's sentencing sees justice done in the eyes of the law, but it will never bring our mother back to us. Her death is something we will never fully recover from. And I ask, how would you for something so senseless, so pointless as I have described? Evil individual indeed. We head down to the county of Suffolk and back to 2006 for our next account. Now, have you yourself for a time in your life been in a relationship that your parents frown upon with someone they don't like for what they hear about them or for their obvious character? Or, if you're a parent yourself, have you felt this about the partner that your child chooses, yet you respect their decision and try your best to get along with them? Sometimes such a relationship will merely run its course, whilst in other times it may come to a crashing halt, leaving all kinds of destruction, something that Patrick and Anne Rice of Leatheringham near Wickham Market in Suffolk know only too well. Back in January 2006, their daughter Rebecca, a Thomas Mills high school pupil, really did have the world at her feet. She'd done well at school and was at the time studying for her AS levels to head on to further education. All the while balancing this with the talented and dedicated runner and horse rider that she was. The clean living, fun loving girl that made friends easily and was described by all who knew her as an exceptionally friendly, chatty and bubbly person. Now, Rebecca was a pretty girl. In all images available of her, that is apparent. But there is no report that she wanted to pursue a career based upon her looks at all. By all accounts, she was academia based. That was until that January 2006, when the then 18 year old Rebecca met a 33 year old amateur freelance photographer for a company called Street Life TV named Stuart Adcock. And she was swept up completely by the big talker who drove a Porsche, who boasted of having a portfolio that included work published in Max Power and the former Nuts and Zoo magazines, and who had a story for everything. The type of person that, if you've got an elephant, he had a bag for it. That type. He also told her that he owned his own modelling agency, the Benfleet-based SPJ Models Photographic Agency and that for someone as photogenic as Rebecca, he could easily launch a successful modelling career for her. Becoming besotted with Adcock, and completely swept up in his promises and gift of the gap, it caused Rebecca to lose interest in his studies, and on the day she passed her driving test, whilst accepting her parents' gift of a Renault 5 car, told them she was leaving home because she wanted greater independence, and told her parents she was living with a photographer called Stuart who helped girls. Her parents were less than thrilled about this, as you can imagine, concerned with the significant age gap between the two and the brash nature of Adcock, as well as the rumours of him dabbling in cocaine use and even selling it, yet they hoped Rebecca would see sense herself in time, and so acquiesced, giving her own head, and Julie made every effort to welcome Adcock into their home. And initially, Adcock had begun a normal relationship with Rebecca and had indeed photographed her in glamour poses wearing full lingerie which had then been posted on an internet modelling website to help her get work. But when this work failed to materialise, as time passed, it began to dawn on Rebecca that perhaps the boyfriend she'd become besotted with maybe just wasn't the best thing since sliced bread That she'd initially thought he was. You see, far from being a successful photographer with a thriving business, none of the publications Adcock claimed to have had work published in had even heard of him. It was part of the largely dream world that he lived in. Adcock was actually an insurance worker who had previously been employed by a number of companies, including Zurich and Norwich Union, and had been dismissed from each for disciplinary issues but told friends or whoever would listen to him that he had a secret job for the government doing confidential work, or that he worked for MI5. He also lied, his favourite lie actually, by stating that his insurance job had necessitated him taking a significant key role at the aftermath of the scene of the London bombings in July 2005, and as a result, he'd seen bodies on buses and tube trains. Now yet the couple had stayed together and indeed moved to Essex for a couple of months very early in their relationship but later Rebecca decided she wanted to move back to the area where she grew up because she missed her family and her horses so much. So Rebecca and Adcock were granted a tenancy at the White House in the street in Pettistree, back nearer to her family and to where they moved in on July 29th 2006. By this time, however, it is clear that Rebecca was trying to extricate herself from a situation she'd rapidly found herself unhappy in, and really, this move back towards her parents, her life, was a way of her returning to her comfort zone to be able to gather the strength to do so. Like so many times we've heard before on the show, Adcock had soon shown his true colours once they'd entered into a relationship and had gone from the charming, charismatic man he had wooed Rebecca with by being, into a possessive, jealous and domineering paranoiac who saw everyone as a potential threat. I'm sure you know the type. He objected to Rebecca going out alone, causing her to have to lie to Adcock about reasons for leaving the house. He banned her from speaking to male friends, and had even begun secretly intercepting her text messages. Eventually. So difficult a situation had it been that the teenager had confided in her former boyfriend Shane Marks that she was no longer happy living with Adcock and regretted the life she'd made with him. Just after moving into their flat on July 29th in a text conversation with another friend Rebecca told her how fed up with his behaviour she was. Adcock had now told her that no one was allowed to visit her at a new flat and how much she wished to move back in with her parents. However, she had added in the conversation, I can't leave him because he'll ruin my life. She told Shane Marks very much the same in another text conversation on Wednesday, August the 2nd. Two days later, on Friday, August the 4th, Adcock left his work at Norwich Union at 5pm and caught the train back to Ipswich. He was collected at the station by rebecca's mother and grandmother and they all had an evening meal together at rebecca's family home before the couple drove back to pettistree it was ahead of rebecca's parents flying over to the usa on the following sunday for a holiday in order to meet up with her brother dominic who was away traveling whilst on his gap year and rebecca had agreed to look after the couple's animals while they were away however They'd heard nothing from her on the Saturday to finalise arrangements for this as had been agreed and by the Sunday morning they'd been around to the flat and noticed her car missing and unable to gain entry were concerned enough to report Rebecca to police as a missing person. Officers duly attended the scene but were themselves unable to gain entry but only a few hours later at 1.45pm they were back and this time forced entry. They'd returned to the scene following a telephone call from Stuart Adcock in which he'd confessed that he had killed Rebecca and duly discovered the young woman's lifeless body at the bottom of the stairs. The previous Friday evening of August the 4th just six days after the pair had moved into their new flat Adcock had left Rebecca to die in a pool of blood after knifing her ten times in the chest and back in an attack in their kitchen and then left the 18-year-old bleeding to death escaping the property in her Renault 5 and having grabbed her mobile phone so she couldn't call for help one of the wounds Rebecca had received was 12 centimetres deep piercing her liver and the later examining pathologist had said she would have remained conscious whilst each of the injuries were being inflicted callous, wicked and horror beyond belief that, isn't it? Adcock had then driven around fairly aimlessly until on the Saturday evening he'd run out of petrol near Hemsby in Norfolk where he'd then broken into a caravan on farmland and was discovered asleep there later that same evening by the farmer's wife. When threatened with the police being contacted Adcock had left claiming he was trying to get to Hemsby and had simply been seeking petrol. The following morning he was indeed seen in Hemsby where he went into a church there and asked them to help him find somewhere to stay he then telephoned his mother Maisie to chat about inane things such as bathroom fittings a conversation in which she later recalled he had sounded fine in and then at about 1 p.m he telephoned his brother Simon and confessed to him what had happened on the Friday evening Simon had immediately urged his brother to telephone police, and so at one thirty pm in a call lasting four minutes, Adcock had explained what had happened, well, his version of what had happened anyway, to police, saying, I'm handing myself in, really. I think you'll find people are looking for me for the suspected murder of my girlfriend. Later that Sunday afternoon, Adcock was arrested just north of Hemsby in Winterton on Sea in Norfolk, where he was found still wearing his bloodstained clothes. When officers arrived to pick him up, they found a length of rope in a slipknot in his pocket, and he would also half heartedly tried to slash his wrists. During his subsequent interview, he admitted stabbing Rebecca. But tried to claim to police that he'd only retaliated because Rebecca had attacked him first, stabbing him in the chest with a knife, describing the overwhelming feeling of fear he'd experienced. But a nurse and two doctors who had each examined his wounds said that the small cut and puncture wounds to his chest appeared to have been self inflicted. Adcock had inflicted a knife wound on himself in an attempt to blame Rebecca for the incident hoping he would be believed because a dead woman could tell no tales otherwise. On the 8th of August 2006, Stuart Adcock appeared before magistrates in Lowestoft, charged with the murder of Rebecca Rice, and was remanded in custody to appear before Ipswich Crown Court on Thursday 17th of August for a preliminary hearing, at which he was again remanded in custody to appear further on the 10th of November where he issued a plea of not guilty. However, at a hearing at Norwich Crown Court on Friday the 2nd of February 2007, Adcock dramatically changed his plea to guilty, just days before he was due to go on trial, because he claimed he wanted to spare Rebecca's family the ordeal of a trial. Dressed in a black suit, Adcock is head shaven and wearing spectacles, Appeared for the five-minute hearing before presiding Mr. Justice Peter Jacobs, staring ahead at the judge and not making eye contact with members of Rebecca's family at the back of the courtroom. Prosecuting Barrister Karim Khalil KC told the judge that the defendant had previously entered a not guilty plea on November the 10th of the previous year, and when Adcock was then formally asked to enter a plea to the charge of murdering Miss Rice between august the 4th and the 6th 2006 he replied guilty graham parkins casey representing adcock told the court he is communicating to the court specific instructions to plead guilty at the soonest opportunity he understood the anxiety of the family to know the reality of this case The judge then remanded Adcock in custody until a sentencing hearing on Thursday February 22nd, a hearing at which Mr Khalil told the court how the couple had met and begun a relationship in early 2006, with him explaining. Adcock was a regular user of cocaine and sold the drug to others. None of her friends could understand why she was going out with him, and her parents were not pleased about the relationship. They were concerned about the significant age gap between them, but they made every effort to make him welcome in their home. However, the relationship changed over time. Initially, Rebecca was besotted by him, but as time went on, she intended to leave him. Stuart Adcock has shown over a number of years that he can be charming and charismatic to women when he is courting them, but once they become his girlfriend, he is inclined to become possessive Jealous and Domineering. The court then heard of Adcock's fantasy life, his claims to work for MI5, his involvement with the aftermath of the 7-7 attacks in London, and his possessiveness towards Rebecca, particularly how he'd begun intercepting her text messages, through which that the jealous and domineering insurance worker had launched a frenzied attack upon the teenager after discovering she was desperate to leave him. Mr Khalil continued In early 2006 Rebecca Rice became his last girlfriend and the pattern I have just described repeated itself until Rebecca decided she was too unhappy to remain with him She made contact with a previous boyfriend and made it plain that she was moving back home to her parents Adcock found out whereupon he decided she would not be allowed to go In a frenzied attack He knifed her many times in the kitchen of their flat and left her to bleed to death. Members of Rebecca's family wept as Mr Khalil then told Norwich Crown Court the graphic details of Adcock's attack and as the harrowing details of her injuries were read out in court Rebecca's mother broke down and sobbed being comforted by her husband. Graham Parkins Casey, defending. Said in mitigation that Adcock had been suffering from depression since 2004, and added, This man, through all the wrong, hurt, and harm he has caused, has never denied the death of Rebecca has been his responsibility. He's demonstrating appropriate remorse. He knows the harm he's done. He's not a man who is a danger to the public. He had no history of real violence. We may never ever know how it started what caused him to react or act in the way that he did. It is bizarre in the extreme. He's now got to face up to the rest of his life, to the hurt he's caused a lot of people. Before Adcock was sentenced, Rebecca's heartbroken mother, father and two brothers had each wrote victim impact statements that were read by the judge and which were later passed to and published by the East Anglian Daily Times, where, in their own words, they opened their hearts to describe the agony they felt since the death of their beloved Beck. Now I feel it's important to add these here in as full as I can just to demonstrate their feelings and emotions and what a loss was felt by them. I think that if you ever get a chance to share something like these when you're accounting someone's case, then you should do because these people deserve nothing but as full an account as you can give them and not to be generalised because people will get bored hearing the same thing. Not at all, whatsoever, they're too important. Anne, Rebecca's mother, wrote Life lost all meaning and purpose for me on August 4th, 2006, the last time I saw my precious daughter alive. The next time I saw her was on August 7th in the Ipswich Hospital Mortuary. I struggled to recognise her, as the body didn't look like my lively, beautiful Rebecca. I find it difficult to comprehend Rebecca had her life taken away so brutally. For your child to be murdered, stabbed to death by someone who was supposed to care for her, leaves me in a living nightmare. My life sentence began on August the 4th. I look forward to the rest of my life with anguish. Her death fills me with sadness, measurable grief, horror, and an emptiness that will never be filled. How can a heart that has been shattered into so many pieces ever be repaired? The last thought before I sleep is Rebecca's death and the first thing when I wake up is again the thought of the violence she suffered at his hands. That is, if I have been able to sleep. The future fills me with fear. All the years ahead of me with nothing but pain and tears. Three years time, will my grief be any less? I think not. Rebecca would have been 21 and we would have been celebrating her birthday. Ten years time, Rebecca would have been 28 What career would she have had, perhaps married with children of her own, my grandchildren? I sometimes imagine what kind of wedding dress she might have had. Instead of arranging a marriage, we arranged a funeral. Instead of a horse-drawn carriage taking her to a wedding, she was carried in a horse-drawn hearse. The most horrendous thing a parent can do is bury their child. A child taken so wickedly, so cruelly and so selfishly by another person. The thought of her suffering immeasurable pain and experiencing fear whilst being stabbed by this monster horrifies me. Yes, I am a victim also. Yes, I am broken by this act of barbarity. Rebecca was 18. She would only known school. She hadn't yet embarked on her adult career. The friends visit me and they are heartbroken. What a start to their adult life, grieving for their friend. They cry. They don't understand such cruelty. I watch my two sons cry at Rebecca's grave. I don't know how to comfort them. I feel useless. I watch my mother and husband cry. Once again, I feel useless. I know that someday I'll be with my precious daughter again though, and I cling on to that belief. A friend of Rebecca's wrote, I feel sorry for all the people who have not yet met Rebecca, and now they never will. Patrick rebecca's father wrote i woke up again this morning at 3 a.m i tried to get back to sleep but couldn't so here i am sitting at the kitchen table at three forty a.m writing this note it probably didn't help that when i came home last night my 22 year old son dominic was sitting in his room bawling his eyes out i didn't need to ask him why as i've been there myself on so many occasions I've been going over and over in my mind the events of the 48 hours between the evening of August the 4th and the evening of August the 6th, and relating these memories back to what was said in court on the date of a recent hearing Friday, February 2nd. The words of the defence counsel, Graham Parkins, have been gnawing away at me from the very first moment they were spoken. How is it that, as claimed by Mr Parkins' client, Stuart Adcock, our anxiety has been relieved by him confessing at the eleventh hour to his heinous crime. He will never suffer the torment and anguish of endless nights of sleep deprivation that we have all had to endure in the intervening period, and will no doubt continue to suffer from in the months and years to come, nor the breaking down in tears at any time of the day for no apparent reason. The only recompense I can gain in the years I have left on this earth is the knowledge that Adcock is safely behind bars and will never get the opportunity to do to any other innocent and unsuspecting teenager what he did to our Rebecca. He is a wicked man, and our lives have been totally destroyed by his callousness and utter disregard for our daughter's life. Dominic, Rebecca's brother On August 7th, 2006, my life as I knew it changed forever. My experience of the final month of my sister's life will leave me heartbroken forever. By the time she passed away, it had already been five months since I last saw Beck, and I was already greatly missing her. From March 2006, I'd been travelling around the world with a friend. On August the 7th, I arrived at Vancouver for the final leg of my travelling before returning home. I was checking into a hostel when the receptionist informed me that the police were looking for me. At first, I thought it was a wind-up. Nothing in the world could have prepared me for the news that was about to follow. The flight home was truly awful. I have never, and never will again, feel so alone. The last thing I ever said to my little sister was that I couldn't wait to see her when I got home, and the last words Beck said to me were of a similar nature. I am so grateful for all these last memories I have of Beck, but there is a pain deep within that I know will stay with me for the rest of my life sebastian rebecca's brother i've been putting off writing this statement because it's the first time i've had to open up to exactly how beck's murder has affected me i don't think anything can prepare you for hearing the news that your little sister has been taken before her time up until now i'd had very little close-hand experience of death i was one of these naive people who believe that this kind of thing doesn't happen to you it happens to other people I think my most treasured memory of Beck is a thank you card she wrote to me last year thanking me for her birthday present. I wish I'd kept all the cards she gave me and I wished I had told her more that I loved her and that I was proud of her. But I was one of these naive people that didn't think this kind of thing happened to them. I'm sorry Beck, I never said these things enough but I will love you forever and will always be so proud of everything you did in your short life you will never be forgotten. Some powerful words indeed, those are, aren't they? They proper choked me on more than one occasion when I was researching. They really did. Stuart Adcock showed no emotion and said nothing as Mr Justice Jacobs, sentencing him to life imprisonment, said, This was a frenzied attack during which you were completely out of control. But at the end of the attack, You had the sufficient presence of mind to take her mobile phone and lie low and do nothing. You left that girl, whose condition you were unaware of, still conscious and bleeding to death on the kitchen floor. You made no attempt to help her yourself or to summon help. Adcock was told he would serve a minimum of 16 years before ever being considered for release and was then taken away to begin his sentence. Speaking outside the court, whilst Adcock's parents, Maisie and Robert, refused to comment about this son's case, Rebecca's tearful parents, Patrick, Anne and their two sons Dominic and Sebastian, before they then moved on to Norwich Cathedral to grieve privately, said in a statement that although they wanted to thank the police for their hard work on the case and their liaison officers for their support, the sentence was nowhere near enough and they had expected more patrick added true justice can never be served though because nothing can bring back our wonderful daughter anne then explained of her own deep regrets over the tragedy saying if he is released in 16 or 17 years he will come at my age and i have a life sentence for the rest of my life it doesn't seem fair he can come out and live for 20 years in society he didn't show any remorse The tears may lessen as the years go by, but our grief and sense of loss will remain with us forever. We wanted Rebecca to visit us, so we made that violent and merciless savage welcome in our home. We didn't choose our children's boyfriends or girlfriends. No one is ever good enough for your daughter, but we just thought it would run its course. She also revealed that her daughter had confided in it on the day that she was murdered that she wanted to end her relationship with Adcock but she had tried to persuade her to part with him amicably as friends saying When she wanted to end the relationship on that Friday I said Talk about it, work things out I think you could part friends I will regret saying that to my dying day I can understand the feelings of regret Anne may have felt here, but really, seriously, there isn't an ounce of guilt that should be felt by Rebecca's family. The guilt is solely down to the flawed individual that is Stuart Adcock, who, incidentally, if he's behaved himself while serving his prison sentence, he may have already been released, or may be looking at an imminent release today, whilst Rebecca's family carry their life sentence still. It doesn't seem right that, does it? Each of the accounts we've had so far have been horrific enough and over the most trivial of reasons, from netting just enough for a trip to the bookies, and an inability to face up to the fact that your own flawed personality is the reason someone wants to leave you. But for the final account, I bring an equally as horrific, perhaps more so tale, and for what equally is a trivial reason. Perhaps the most, certainly the most trivial excuse given, anyway, and for it, we head to the city of Swansea, and back to 2002. 21-year-old Elizabeth Jane Sims-Reese lived lived in Guilver Road in the Swansea area of Town Hill, and with both of them living alone, had become friendly with a neighbour, 44-year-old Richard Cullen. It's very likely she would have given him a wide berth had she known the full details of his past, although the pentangle he had tattooed on his forehead should really have set the alarm bells ringing with her. Cullen had been jailed for five years in 1990 for arson and possession of a firearm, and again in 1993 for an indecent assault and for making threats to kill. It was during this indecent assault that he had told his victim about his love for Satan, and that he was a proud, self-confessed devil worshipper, who also admitted he once used to regularly, ritually sacrifice dogs in bloody rituals, because dog, spelt God, backwards. Exactly the kind of neighbour you want that, isn't it? Late in the afternoon of June 21st, 2002, Cullen and Elizabeth had been at Cullen's house watching an episode of the television programme Buffy the Vampire Slayer, during which Cullen had said that he fancied one of the characters, his favourite, a female vampire called Drusilla, played by actress Juliet Landau, daughter of Mission Impossible's rolling hand, Martin Landau. In his own later account, Cullen said that Elizabeth had replied to this, saying that that was a nonce's choice, which Cullen said had angered him, and caused him to launch into a ferocious attack upon her. He said that he put his hand over her mouth and shoved her against the wall and then put tape over her mouth and hands adding that he told her If I'm a nonce, I can be anything I fucking want to. He said that when he took the tape off her mouth after a while she didn't calm down but got worse and so he put the tape back over her mouth and shoved her onto the sofa face down. He said that she got more agitated at this and so he had snapped and grabbed a rubber mallet and hit her on the head with it a number of times, smashing his skull in several places. Following this, he said that she was still making noises, and so, realising that she was still alive, though gravely wounded, rather than ring for assistance, he instead put a t-shirt around her neck, tied a knot in it, and then used the handle of the mallet to tighten it and to strangle her. Reminiscent to the Spanish windlass method used by John Duffy and David Mulcahy. Cullen added that after he realised Elizabeth was dead, he took her body upstairs and then, after cleaning up downstairs, went back up and began molesting her, before having vaginal and anal sex with her, raping her three times in total. To the ears of incredulous and horrified detectives, He then told them that her skin had a strange taste to it, which he liked, and that he wanted to drag it out as long as he could. It's the stuff nightmares are made of that indeed, isn't it? Monstrous. Elizabeth Sims Reek's body was discovered on Saturday evening, the 22nd of June, after Cullen walked into Swansea's main police station at around 1800 and made a full confession after giving himself up. Cullen had initially claimed that his victim was blackmailing him after finding photographs of him at his home dressed as a woman, and he had snapped when she had made monetary demands from him to keep this quiet, but soon admitted the account of what had happened, which you've just heard. On the 24th of June 2002, Cullen appeared before Swansea magistrates charged with her murder. Cullen admitted the charge when he appeared before Swansea Crown Court on the 1st of November of that year in a pre-trial hearing and at a hearing on Friday the 8th of November was sentenced to life imprisonment. Cullen had also originally faced rape charges involving two unnamed women though he had denied the allegations and these were left to lie on file as the prosecution said the public interest did not require a trial for them because of the standard life sentence that cullen would receive for admitting murder which i doubt the women concerned were satisfied with really frustratingly i couldn't find any further information concerning these charges whilst researching this case either family and friends of miss sims reese were in court to hear the evidence as james jenkins KC prosecuting told the court how elizabeth was at the time of her murder at one of the lowest points of her life. But after spending most of her childhood in foster homes, she was back on good terms with her family and they were helping her to pull through. Some months before, when she'd moved into Guilver Road, she'd befriended Richard Cullen, not knowing he had a lengthy criminal record for charges ranging from arson to indecent assault. It was a friendship that came to a crashing halt on the 21st of June of that year, when Cullen had admitted raping and murdering Elizabeth, his neighbour, he claimed in a row over the TV programme Buffy the Vampire Slayer, with Mr Jenkins saying, He made an appreciative comment about one of the characters, and she told him it was a Nazi choice. That comment resulted in lengthy and protracted violence, which resulted in her death. The jury were visibly shocked when details of Elizabeth's injuries were given out and Ian Sims-Reese, her brother, and Sharon Harlow, her mother, walked out of court in tears as full details of the brutal murder unfolded, unable to hear as Mr Jenkins described Cullen's actions. The court was told that after he had raped and killed Elizabeth, Cullen sat downstairs smoking until the following morning, when he then disposed of the mallet. Later that day, June 22nd, He walked into a Swansea police station and told officers I've killed a young woman. Police who went immediately around to Gwilver Road and forced the way into Cullen's home found Elizabeth's beaten and violated body still lay on his bedroom floor with a t-shirt still around her neck. Another t-shirt had been put over her head hiding her features. Mr Jenkins added that during a police interview, Cullen had claimed Elizabeth had found photos of him, including some of him dressed as a woman, and became obsessed with thought she was blackmailing him, or was intending to, said Mr Jenkins. He believed she was heavily mixed up with the local drug scene and felt threatened by the people she was involved with, but I hasten to add that the post-mortem carried out in her body only showed the slightest traces of alcohol and no drugs whatsoever. He furthered that when this story was challenged, Cullen had admitted what had really happened, and had spoken with alarming frankness and clarity about the murder. Sentencing Cullen, presiding Mr Justice Richards told him, The circumstances surrounding this murder are totally appalling, and you are clearly a menace to society. I sentence you to life in prison and in making my recommendations as to a minimum sentence I will take into consideration the cooperation you have given during this investigation. Unbelievably Cullen had been sentenced to a minimum tariff of just 12 years imprisonment for committing the horror that I have described. As spectators in the public gallery applauded Sharon Harlow Elizabeth's mother shouted you're scum for what you did to that little girl as Cullen was taken away to her majesty's prison Swansea to begin his sentence Sharon had not known any details of the crime before Cullen's sentencing and in the week following told the Western Mail newspaper what he did to my little angel is just unbelievable how any human being can do that to another person is just beyond comprehension cullen is evil he's the scum of the earth and i would like to see him shot for what he did to my girl there should be the death penalty for people like him and i'd want to pull the trigger he's shown no remorse for what he's done society would be much better off if he was just wiped off the face of the earth it just tears me apart when i think about what happened to her in that house the police told me that it was a violent attack But I didn't know what exactly happened until I heard the prosecutor go through the facts in court. Can you imagine what that was like for a mother to hear that her daughter died like that? I haven't been able to eat or sleep since then. I don't think I'll ever recover from it. Whenever I close my eyes, I just think of Elizabeth. She was such a trusting girl, and her biggest mistake was making friends with Cullen. how would you ever recover whatever has happened to you in your life to that point to have estranged you from one another how would you recover and frustratingly i couldn't find anything to explain what had estranged them either while i was researching Sharon over the years visited Elizabeth's grave often vying for that closeness that sounded somewhat lacking between them through Elizabeth's short life and on the second anniversary of her death The following tribute to Elizabeth was posted online. Elizabeth Jane Sims-Reese In loving memory of a special daughter who died two years ago today. One day I will find you, never again to part, and put my arms around you Elizabeth, and you'll mend my broken heart. Love and miss you always, and Roy, Brother Ian, Sister-in-law Emma, Nephew Josh, and loved and missed by all your children. By almost five years after her murder, still tormented, Sharon was stealing herself for a meeting with senior police officers to tell her the full details of what had happened on the night of Elizabeth's death and explain to the BBC News. I think I'm ready to know now. I know it's taken so long, but at the beginning, I didn't want to know anything what happened to her. Now I'm a little bit stronger and I want to know what happened to my daughter. I want to know the truth. I don't know what's going to be said, but I've been told it's not very nice what I'm going to hear. My heart is telling me to go, and I am going because I'm a mother and I want to know why my daughter is in her grave. Sharon went on to explain that Elizabeth, who she described as happy-go-lucky, a wonderful, bubbly, trusting girl, the apple of my eye, had been a daughter she'd struggled to come to terms with losing and that she missed every day saying i'm just a bag of nerves at the moment i can't sleep i'm not eating i've got a lot of people caring for me to make sure i'm all right i cry about her i just wish she was here with me today instead of me being put through all this again after five years i still can't accept she's not here with me and i will never accept it i'm just waiting for the door to open or the phone to ring Sharon added that following her meeting with police officers Elizabeth's family were planning to celebrate what would have been Elizabeth's birthday on Saturday the 5th of May the first time they'd marked the day since she died. And the individual responsible for such misery? Following his conviction Cullen had spent the first four years of his sentence at Her Majesty's Prison, Swansea. A long-term heavy smoker who found it difficult to stop despite advice and support from prison staff. Cullen had a long history of heart and lung disease, and in December 2004 had a heart attack from which he was to make a recovery, albeit a lengthy one. He was then moved to Monster Mansion itself, Majesty's Prison Wakefield, on the 7th of March 2006. Having stayed at Wakefield since then, and served over his Absolutely disgraceful minimum recommended tariff. On the 28th of August 2015, wing staff locked prisoners in their cells at 11.30am for the lunch period. And whilst Cullen was unlocked at approximately 12.52pm, the officer doing so thought he was asleep and didn't attempt to get a response from him. At about 1pm, a prisoner named only as Prisoner A went into Cullen's cell and left a magazine on his bed. Later telling investigators that the curtain was drawn and Cullen was on his bed with a fleece jacket wrapped around him. They didn't speak, but the prisoner said this was not unusual as he too assumed that he was sleeping. At around 3.10 pm, another prisoner, prisoner B, looked into Cullen's cell as he walked past. Cullen again appeared to be asleep, but his left leg was hanging over the side of his bed. Though Prisoner B continued past the cell he returned almost immediately as he felt something was wrong. He went into the cell and spoke to Cullen who did not reply and shook him though he did not respond. It was then that he noticed that Cullen's lips were purple he'd slobbered on his pillow and his lips and cheek appeared to have drooped. Alerting prison staff in the wing office within a minute they'd arrived and begun CPR Undertaking a total of five cycles with a defibrillator until 323 pm when paramedics arrived to take over, and who continued CPR until 344 pm when they ceased and confirmed that Cullen had died. A later post mortem report concluded that Cullen died from ischemic heart disease, coronary artery atheroma, and chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. One devil is back in hell at least there three savage crimes here then each committed for the most senseless of reasons I almost titled the episode Driven to It but then I thought better of that for no one is really driven to commit the heinous crimes as described here not Flood in his desperation to get money to win that big gamble not Adcock because his girlfriend had realised what a pathetic and flawed individual he was and blaming her was easier than accepting it was his own fault, and certainly not Cullen, who committed murder and rape over, he claimed, over a joking insult concerning a comment on a television show. However quickly each may have confessed to murder and issued a guilty plea, I don't believe this outer remorse for their actions whatsoever. I think it a sense more of inevitability that they would be caught regardless and an attempt to lessen the inevitable life sentence they knew would be coming for them. The tears of Andrew Flood seemed to be much more for himself, and possibly his family too, rather than Margaret or Annie, or their families. A family that he left with the same amount of problems, indeed increasing them, and selfishly, that he took himself out of the equation for dealing with. His crimes are impossible to fathom, they do just seem so pointless it almost beggars belief, and perhaps it really is that he cannot explain himself why his bloodlust was so built up that Monday afternoon. Because of alcohol, or because he'd successfully robbed a similar victim two days before, neglecting the fact that she may ultimately recognise him for his very distinct appearance, having just two teeth, and the fact that he'd collected her in a taxi only days before and had decided that he wasn't leaving that to chance again. But then, most people who commit more than one murder do it either immediately at the same time as others, or over a period of days, perhaps weeks or months, not within an hour, punctuated by a trip to the bookies. It would scream of a serious mental disturbance, and yet, psychiatrists were unable to fathom why he did what he did, or find any psychological flaws with Flood, other than his alcohol abuse. It's a puzzler. Pointless murder, for what? Adcock, meanwhile, as I described before, this is such a flawed individual that it was easy for him to kill Rebecca, rather than face up to his flaws and try to change for the better. For it was solely his doing that led to the breakdown of their relationship, and to continue living in the dream world that he did that he was a spy, that he'd been involved in this and that. Yet when the cold light of day comes, and you're more likely to be in bloody S Club 7 than MI5, what do you do? You can't live on the run, so you hand yourself in to police. I must stress that with him, or any of the individuals who are featured here, no credit whatsoever should be given for a guilty plea and handing themselves in. They've each committed murder, no credit whatsoever should be awarded to them for admitting what they've clearly done and this should reflect in the sentences I share the Rice family disgust at a 16 year minimum sentence for such a brutal murder complete with the callousness of taking Rebecca's mobile phone just so she would certainly die without being able to call for help that is monstrous that is and such an individual should never see the light of day again let alone possibly be free today. If he is free, then the only thing I can hope, and I sincerely mean this, is that prison has completely broken Adcock, and he now lives a shell-like existence, deservedly for the horror that he inflicted upon the Rice family. Cullen, meanwhile, I believe was a ticking time bomb. This was a depraved, disgusting sounding individual who had a history of sexual offending. And I believe that since he'd befriended Elizabeth, it was always with an eye to offending against her in this way a vulnerable, somewhat troubled sounding young woman. And he just decided that Friday that that was the day to. I believe further that the violence of the murder aroused him to the point where he raped her three times, horrifically most likely due to the sounds of her injuries while she was dying, or perhaps already dead. You don't commit such horror merely because someone has made a joking remark about a TV show, do you? This story about the Buffy character is an absolute work of fiction, I would believe. Again, because it's easier to blame anything, anything, rather than admit it is because you were simply a monster, like Richard Cullen was. As I said at the end of his account, if there is such a thing as hell, then one devil is really back there with his death, mourned by nobody, and a death even celebrated by the family of Elizabeth Sims Reese. What do you think? Whatever you do think, I implore you to take first and foremost from the episode thoughts of Margaret, Annie, Rebecca and Elizabeth. The innocent victims throughout all of this. Remember them over those responsible for them losing their lives. I would love, as always, hearing your thoughts and feedback concerning the tales I've brought you in the episode The Driver, The Dreamer, and The Devil Worshipper, which you can do so in the thread that's now up in the show's Facebook discussion group or through any of the show's social media links. Wherever you wish to folks I'm always happy to correspond. I shall be back soonest with another installment of The Enthusiast that I'm cracking on with as you listen and that I look forward to you hearing. I thank you all so kindly for joining me in the Pigster today and all that remains for me to say is that I've been, I still am and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast. Wishing you all good and safe times and I shall speak to you very soon. Take care all, Stay safe.